This is a download from Ormskirk Christadelphians of one of our Sunday afternoon talks. A video of the talk is also available along with more downloads at our website, ormskirkchristadelphians.org.uk or join us in person at our meeting room on Moorgate in Ormskirk every Sunday at 1.45pm. We hope you enjoy the talk. Well, good afternoon. Just why the world is as it is, full of trouble, pain, suffering, uh, is, I suppose, a problem that affects us all, and it worries us all. But... uh, When you think about it, really, it's much more of a problem to those who have a faith than to those who don't. Professor Richard Dawkins, who you probably know is the noted evolutionist, he put the situation for atheists in these words. This was a quote on how he uh, views the world. And he says, There's no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference and that's a very bleak statement isn't it but that's why the world is as it is if you take God out of the picture if the world is just a product of blind chance then you have no right to start querying why there is so much suffering in the world it's illogical but for those who believe in God especially in a loving God then questions abound, don't they? We want to know why there is suffering in the world. Why does God allow it? Why do innocents have to suffer? Babies die. And why is it all so apparently unfair? Because we know of people who have terrible difficulties in their life, accidents, illnesses and so on, on and on. And then others have no problems and sail through life uh, in all serenity. Those of us who have a faith, of course, can turn to the Bible for answers, and if we do, I suppose it's inevitable that eventually we are led towards this book, the book of Job, which occurs in the poetry section of the Bible. We read this book because it's all about suffering, the suffering of this particular man, and we hope that um, in considering the terrible things that uh, overtook Job and and seeing how he coped, that in some way is going to help us and teach us how to cope if difficulties come our way. Of course, we hope that what overtook Job uh, is not going to be our own problem. Uh, uh, We've just read the terrible situation in which he found himself eventually. I think it's probably fairly significant that the book of Job is amongst the earliest, if not the earliest, of the writings that we have in the Old Testament. Uh, It shows, I think, that the problem of suffering is something that's always been there uh, from the very beginning. And equally, you know, when we turn to the New Testament, we find that the suffering of Job is mentioned again in one of the earliest writings of the first century, the epistle of James, the the letter of James. And I'd like you, if you would, to keep a finger or marker in Job and come with me to uh, the letter of James. Because uh, James talks about uh, Job, talks about how really he is a man to be respected because of the way that he did cope with suffering. And James chapter 5 
is where we want to just take a couple of verses from. James says in James 5 verse 10, Take my brethren the prophets who have spoken in the name of the Lord for an example of suffering affliction and of patience. Behold, we count them happy which endure. Ye have heard of the patience of Job and have seen the end of the Lord that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. Now when you look at a passage like that it seems odd, doesn't it, to think of those who've endured suffering as being in some way happy there at the beginning of verse 11. I think the newer versions of the Bible say blessed. Uh, And yet when you think about it, really to endure pain and sufferings stoically as an end in itself is is not really credit worthy, is it? Uh, But if there is an object to it, if there's an end result, then possibly we can see or imagine that some good might come out of suffering. And that, in a way, is hinted at here. At the end of verse 11, James says, You've seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. The uh, English Standard Version says, instead of the end of the Lord, the purpose of the Lord, as if to say that God was working towards a result in what he caused to be brought upon his servant Job. In other words, Job's suffering wasn't pointless. God wasn't acting casually or capriciously, shall we say. The second point is that point at the end of verse 11, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. And I think that always needs to be borne in mind whenever we're struggling to understand some of the things that happen to us in our lives. And if we go back now to the book of Job, we find that both those points run through this whole story. That issue of God having an end in view. Did God have a purpose in mind with what happened to Job? Was there something to learn behind what he suffered? And the other point, uh, was God really dealing with this man uh, pitifully? Uh, Did he have pity and compassion towards Job? Or was he really punishing him, perhaps, for something that Job didn't know about, or perhaps he'd forgotten, or, or wasn't admitting to? When you get back to these early chapters of Job, uh, you'll perhaps know that a lot of effort has been spent discussing who or what was the Satan that's mentioned in these chapters 1 and 2. The whole story revolves about the accusations that the Satan makes about Job. And yet really the, uh, the, the identity of this Satan, and just remember the word only means adversary, it isn't really critical to the understanding of the overall message of the book. Uh, we could add to that where Job lived or when he lived, uh, what his terrible disease was that he was smitten with in chapter 2, or uh, who Elihu was at the end of the book, or whether his argument was right or wrong. All these things are really not important against our seeking to understand what God was teaching Job. 
and um, by extension, of course, what he's trying to teach us when we read this book. Whoever the Satan was, or the adversary was, his challenge obviously represents very basic human thinking. And it shows also, I would suggest, a human cynicism. Uh, His challenge uh, shows that he was jealous over Job's wealth. And his challenge also, I think, shows a subconscious envy of Job's righteousness, his virtue. Let's just read uh, chapter 1 and verse 9 to 11 again. The Satan answered the Lord and said, Doth Job fear God for naught? Hast not thou set an hedge about him and about his house and about all that he hath on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands and his substance is increased in the land. But put forth thine hand now and touch all that he hath and he will curse thee to thy face. You can see the cynicism there, can't you? That this individual, this adversary, uh, resented Job's wealth and thought that Job served God only because he was so well blessed. So it means, of course, that part of what, uh, part at least of what Job suffered came about to prove that that challenge was unfounded, it was wrong. And as it progresses, as the story progresses, we see that Job didn't uh, serve God just because his life was richly blessed at all. His faith held strong even in this terrible adversity. And incidentally, it was something that worried Job himself, because he says in chapter 3, that which I feared is come upon me. So it must have gone through his own thinking, does he serve God because he is so well blessed? And if these blessings are removed, will I change? But as we say, it changed he didn't. Go, Go down to verse 20. This is after all this bad news. Then Job arose and rent his mantle and shaved his head and fell down upon his ground and wor- uh, upon the ground and worshipped and said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then the comment is made in all this. Job sinned not nor charged God foolishly. By any standards, that's a remarkable reaction, isn't it? And I think probably if we'd had to suffer what Job suffered, uh, most of us would have complained bitterly and wondered why God was treating us so unfairly and so cruelly. Incidentally, whilst we were looking at the uh, letter of James, we could have pointed out the verse which says that if any man offends not in word, the same is a perfect man. And that is the point that verse 22 is making there. In all this, Job sinned not and charged God foolishly. He was very careful, uh, especially at the start, on what he said. His uh, words indicated what his thinking was. Uh, And that was uh, God's assessment of Job, that he was a perfect man because he could keep charge of his tongue. Look at chapter 2 and verse 3. The Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil, and still he holdeth fast his integrity, although thou movest me against him to destroy him without cause? 
So God said that he was a man of integrity. And as the story progresses, that was something that was very important to Job. He says, I will maintain my integrity. At all costs, he was going to hang on to his integrity. It means really to be complete, to be, to be sound, to be honest, a reliable individual. In short, as we said, Job was a righteous man. But that in itself makes it difficult to understand why these things happened to him. Why did he have to suffer as he did? Of course, when we ask that question, we're falling into the trap, which almost everybody does, of linking suffering with manner of life. We link suffering with behaviour, don't we? In some way, we feel that good people oughtn't to suffer. But when bad people suffer, then perhaps we think, well, didn't they get what they deserved? And Job's situation seems uh, particularly unjust and unfair to us in our human thinking. And certainly his wife thought that that was the case, uh, especially in chapter 2 when he was later smitten with this terrible skin disease, uh, which is mentioned in verse 7 of chapter 2. And then she said as much that um, God was being unfair. In verse 9, doesn't she? She says, uh, Dost thou still retain thine integrity? Curse God and die. But he said unto her, Thou speakest as one of the foolish women speaketh. What, shall we receive good at the hand of God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this did not Job sin with his lips. Now I think not many people could react in that balanced sort of way we, we think we know what's fair don't we so we'd probably argue here that God was being particularly unfair with Job or at least in some way was making a mistake and that would lead us on I think to thinking well perhaps God was punishing Job for something that we don't know about and, and that was precisely the thinking of Job's friends, his three friends who came. There they are mentioned in verse uh, 11. They're known, aren't they, as Job's comforters because they arrived to sympathise with him. Actually, when they came, they were so shocked at his situation that they said nothing for a week. But when at last they felt uh, empowered to comment, they react as almost everybody else does they feel in some way that Job must have been getting what he deserved. Something that he wasn't perhaps prepared to admit to. Just move on to chapter 4 and verse 7. This is what Eliphaz, who's, who's the first speaker, he seems to be the one who uh, they defer to. He says in verse 7, Remember, I pray thee, whoever perished being innocent... Or where were the righteous cut off? Even as I have seen, they that plough iniquity and sow wickedness reap the same. Now, he's falling into the trap that we mentioned earlier, isn't he? Thinking that good people, in some way, shouldn't suffer, whereas bad people deserve what happens to them, what they get. And it's wrong, it's a wrong argument, and yet human beings... Uh, like to know the reason for something they, they like to think that they're 
is a reason why something happens in life uh, and you, you, if you went to the New Testament and John's Gospel you don't have to turn to it but it's in Ch- John chapter 9 you remember when Jesus' own disciples were falling into exactly the same trap when Jesus was faced with a man who was blind he'd been blind from birth and that bothered the disciples and they said Master, who did sin? was it this man or was it his parents that he was born blind? There must be a cause to this. There must be a reason. And Jesus said neither was at fault. It's a mistake to attribute blame in this way or link suffering to a specific cause. And he went on to tell about the uh, 18 who were killed by a falling tower, you remember, in Siloam. And he says, these people, don't think these people were particularly wicked because that happened to them. But equally, he didn't go on to explain, did he, why such things do happen. And so we we need, I think, to be very careful when we think we know and we see a link between what happens to a person and we think we know possibly why it did or why it's going to affect them in the future and improve them. Job's three friends, his three comforters, thought that they knew they knew that, or they thought they knew that Job was being judged for a secret sin that he wasn't prepared to admit to. And that's really the argument and the contention that goes through these long discussions that they have. And it's quite a long book, isn't it? And as, of, as so often happens in serious discussions like this, people get heated and uh, start saying uh, things more bitterly than they ever should. And it in effect they're making slanderous accusations about Job's uh, past life Uh, uh, saying things totally out of turn that they should never have been said and really in doing that of course they're only adding to their friends distress and mental anguish and there's a lesson there I think that we need to be very careful when we're faced with uh, someone else who's enduring suffering and we're there to sympathize with them we have to accept that we can never really know the whys and wherefores of these things and to suggest that we do is really only going to add uh, to add to their hurt at the end of the book uh, God criticizes Job's comforters uh, for speaking unwisely they've not helped Job at all Uh, And in fact, Job himself is criticised by God because in the extremity of his suffering, uh, he's guilty of accusing God of being unfair, unjust, uh, and not providing him with the answers that he he wants. He even goes to the extent of feeling that God has become his, his enemy in some way, which most certainly wasn't the case. Uh... In fact, the reverse was the true, wasn't it? And uh, I think here we can begin to move ever so slowly to to beginning to understand what was going on in this uh, uh, procedure, this suffering that was brought upon Job. You see, if God wasn't punishing Job for some hidden sins, what was he trying to achieve? 
he was answering that challenge of course that we talked earlier that God did uh, that Job didn't serve God just because he was well blessed in life I think the answer uh, is bound up in some of the further words of this man Eliphaz if you turn over well it's over over the page in my Bible to chapter 5 we've got to say that for the most part Job's friends words were unwise their arguments were faulty but I think these words in chapter 5 are true Uh, verse 17 of chapter 5 behold happy is the man whom God correcteth therefore despise not thou the chastening of the almighty for he maketh sore and bindeth up he woundeth and his hands make whole now that's that word happy again that we met in James isn't it happy is the man whom God correcteth Uh, James had said we count them happy which endure those who endure chastening or I suppose uh, we call it correction or discipline wouldn't we in other words happy are those who learn from the hardship of suffering but how can we be sure that these words of Eliphaz here in verse 17 and 18 are true is it really the way that God works is, is this the purpose the end that he has in view what, is this what he wants to achieve well I think it's helpful to consider two or three other passages where this principle of correction or chastening uh, is developed and I want to take you back to the book of Deuteronomy and chapter 8 where we find Moses talking along very similar lines or at least learning from God why difficulties are allowed to creep into life we learn a lot from hardship don't we when you think about it if life was only a bed of roses we'd learn nothing we only learn by taking the rough with the smooth that's how our characters are developed are formed improved let's read the early verses of Deuteronomy 8 all the commandments which I command thee this day shall ye observe to do that ye may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord sware unto your fathers this of course is to the nation of Israel who were coming out of Egypt and going to the promised land Verse 2, Thou shalt remember all the way which the Lord thy God led thee these forty years in the wilderness to humble thee and to prove thee and to know what was in thine heart whether thou wouldest keep his commandments or no. And he humbled thee and suffered thee to hunger and fed thee with manna which thou knewest not neither did thy fathers know that he might make thee know that man doth not live by bread only but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord doth man live thy raiment wax not old upon thee neither did thy foot swell these forty years thou shalt also consider in thine heart that as a man chasteneth his son so the Lord thy God chasteneth thee now that's that chastening that Eliphaz was talking about in Job chapter 5 isn't it all parents work this way they know that children need discipline and guidance 
And equally, because of that, children should learn to trust their parents. They learn that their rules and their boundaries in life are to be respected because it's for their ultimate good. The words there at the end of verse 3 are are, are very interesting, aren't they? Uh, That man does not live by bread only, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. You know those words, they were on the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ, on the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ, when he was tempted in the wilderness to change stones into bread because he was starving hungry. It explains what was going on in the wilderness, that the father was teaching the son by testing him and proving him, uh, as verse 2 has it here, to know what was in his heart. And it happens again, uh, move on if you will, to Proverbs in chapter 3. We said this is how parents work. Can't always be uh, a bed of roses. Life is not always sweetness and light because we learn nothing. We learn from opposites, don't we? We don't know what pain and suffering would would be if we never suffer it. We don't know what uh, being warm and comfortable would mean if we'd never been freezing cold out in the in the rain and snow. We learn by these opposites. As simple as you can't teach what up means if you don't know what down means and so on. You get, you get the point. And when you're in Proverbs 3, here is Solomon talking about uh, a man teaching his son. Proverbs 3, um, verse 11. And this explains why God disciplines with hardship and suffering. Verse 11. My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, neither be weary of his correction. For whom the Lord loveth, he correcteth, even as a father, the son in whom he delighteth. And that's interesting, that God disciplines out of love. There in verse 12, uh, we remember what James said, that the end of the Lord, the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. And we have that again here, don't we, in verse 13 of Proverbs 3. Happy is the man that findeth wisdom and the man that getteth understanding. It's that word happy, uh, the one who learns and understands that hardship can be a sign of God's love for us. Uh, I said two or three, we'll make it three. Just come with me, if you will, to uh, Hebrews now and chapter, chapter 12. And this is the point that's emphasised once again, that it's God's love that brings chastening and difficulties into our lives. Children sometimes kick back, don't they, against discipline. They, they, don't, they, they rebel against their, their parents' advice. And in doing that, they're missing the point, really, that their parents are really concerned with their ultimate good. And children who kick back are really being selfish and uh, eventually become unruly. Uh, Chapter 12 of Hebrews and verse 5. He says that they're not to forget the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. 
My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If you endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the father chasteneth not? And then he talks about the situation in the next verses, 8 and 9, about earthly parents dealing with their uh, awkward children. Then verse 10, he says, For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. It's for our ultimate good that God brings difficulties into our life, says the writers. So what conclusions can we we draw from, it's a very brief look at the book of Job, isn't it, and the sufferings that God brought upon him. What conclusions do we draw from how he coped with what came upon him? And as we said, Job, Job was looking for answers. He wanted to challenge God. He saw himself as being placed in, in the dock, if you like, but the judge was absent. He kept wanting God to come and argue against him, and he would uh, fight his corner, as we say. And yet, all the way through, although he prayed about it several times, Job received no answers, uh, no explanations as to what, is, what was going on. And he didn't understand what was going on. But the point is, really, that it wasn't pointless. He was changed. And perhaps he didn't realise he was being changed. But at the end, Job was a much humbler man than at the beginning. Uh, At the beginning, undoubtedly, as we've read, he was a good man. But that goodness, that righteousness, was only relative to other men. Not relative to God's righteousness. And at the end of the book, we find that he had a much reduced opinion of his own righteousness, of, of, of his own integrity. He'd rejected his own righteous position, his integrity he was prepared now to let go. And he'd learned that he was in no position really to question or to challenge God. You know that when God finally made himself known and intervened into the argument he put a series of questions to Job nearly 70 questions none of which could Job answer where were you when I created this do you know how the eagles do this and why the ostrich is like this and so on Seven, well almost 70 questions and Job is left floundering because he realises that the almighty God cannot be challenged by a man and it's, uh, uh, it's impertinent even to try to question why God does things. You can only conclude that God knows best. He knows what he's doing and why he's doing certain things. And what he is doing is for the best. That's the important point. And really that is all we can conclude. We want more, but we're not given more. Uh, sometimes with the benefit of hindsight the passage of the time allows us to look back and we can say well perhaps those events happened because it led to this and that I approve of and it's helped me but it doesn't always work that way does it we've got to learn that ultimately 
everything turns out for the best in God's purpose. All things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. All things work together for good. That's the good things and the bad things. We've humbly to go along with what is put our way uh, and accept that God knows best and he knew best in Job's case. As we say at the end, he was a much changed man. He was a much humbled man. And because of that, Job recognised how much his friends needed help. And so he prayed for them, as we know at the end of the book. And it was when he prayed for them that God restored all that he lost uh, and blessed him uh, perhaps doubly in, in some cases. There was a reinstatement of his former life. Now that's not guaranteed, is it? But in his case, it did show that God was being very pitiful and of tender mercy. But more than that, he learned, I think, that salvation is by grace. And there's no point putting to God our righteousness, our integrity. He was a a perfect man, but relative to other men. Uh, The whole story of Job's suffering, I think, is to show us that God does have a purpose he does have an end in view and he changed his servant Job Uh, he improved him and ultimately I believe brought him to salvation Uh, the lesson is ours that God's discipline and providence is for our betterment Uh, and in his mercy it's for our ultimation we'd like answers more specific answers because that's the way our minds work but we're not given them sadly we can only uh, rely on our father's greater knowledge his greater wisdom and that he is working for our ultimate uh, good that we might be as Hebrew said partakers of his holiness and I take that to mean that we might develop his character we'd be better people because we understand his character through what has happened to us without God in the world as uh, we referred to Richard Dawkins didn't we the world is stark it's unfeeling it's a pitiless place if it's ruled by blind chance then without God there's no hope there's no reason there's no assurance and there's no final Salvation, But with God in the world, we can at least rely on him to bring us to his desired end. And that is that we might be better people, that we might be like him, and that we might eventually have eternal life in a renewed earth. And what a prospect that is to set before mortal, dying human creatures. We hope you enjoyed that talk. For more downloads, videos, information about what we believe, and details of our meeting times, go to our website, ormskirtchristadelphians.org.uk.